Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis. I am joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. So if you are just tuning in for the first time, first of all, welcome. Second of all, Steve and I are both uh, adult endocrinologists. We work at the University of California, San Diego, um, and we both have type 1 diabetes since we were 15. So Steve, what is today's topic? Yes. Today's topic, in short, is called MDI, a common doctor phrase that stands for multiple daily injections, which really pertain to both people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Now, I just have to say that a lot of our programming and even our video conferences, we talk a lot about insulin pumps, hybrid closed loop, artificial pancreas, automatic insulin delivery systems. This is not about those systems. And it turns out that most people with type 1, the majority, and the vast majority of type 2s who have to take insulin are taking multiple daily injections. So the purpose of this podcast is really to talk about how to be successful using this common regimen. Mm -hmm. And I think being clear that of course we're big advocates for technology, CGM, artificial pancreas, and there's great benefits there. But you know, we want to make sure that we're addressing the, the, the conversation of all these people that are not using these systems. So how do you get the most out of insulin when you're taking it through a syringe or a pen? Yeah. How do, how do we allow people on MDI? And they choose that reason uh, specifically. Most Hopefully, it's not just their physician's decision. Right. And they can do just as well as other folks. They may have to work a little harder, take a little few more injections. But, um, well, let's get into uh, introducing our guest. Henry, um, I should just say that I've been friends with Henry a long time, uh, a pediatric endocrinologist that has spent a good part of his career uh, working in the diabetes industry space, many different companies, including Type One Diabetes Exchange, uh, and you know Sanofi, and now with Invecta, which is a subdivision. It's probably not the best description of BD Beck and Dickinson, who make the needles of the world. And so, um, welcome, Henry. Tell us a little bit about your background that I didn't really cover very well. <laughs> That's right, Steve. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me uh, on the show. And uh, Jeremy, it's great to see you uh, as well. Um, you know, as long as my mother is not listening, it's okay not to give the best introduction. So um, <laughs> I'll only say that uh, Embecta is actually a spinoff of BD. Um, and now a, a separate company um, known as you were mentioning as the company that makes needles and syringes. And so MDI is a really, really important topic uh, for me. Uh, but my career really spanned span doing a lot of different things in industry, but continuing to see patients because that's what keeps me rooted uh, in what it is I do every single day. Well, we appreciate that. Could I just ask you quickly, why did you pick pediatrics versus adult endocrinology? Yeah, you know, there was this notion when I was in medical school that pediatrics, kids can do no harm. They're pure. They're naive. They really don't have any history uh, in their lives that you can uh, point to and say, this is a bad this is a bad player. They're kids. But it's sort of like veterinary medicine in the sense that 
you know, all the kids come with an owner, also known as a parent. And so <laughs> although, you, although you have the child who's, uh, who's the person you're caring for, you're really caring for the entire family. Adult medicine just seemed um, that people had already been in their cycles of life and have experienced so much that there was less of an impact, um, at least from my perspective, I could have with that population as opposed to pediatrics. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what we're going to we'll do is um, Jeremy and I decided that since um, both people type 1 and type 2 are on MDI, we would uh, go through the different components and then maybe talk about type 1 first and then switch right away to folks with type 2. So, Jeremy, let me ask you, and then we'll, Henry, we'll get your input. Um, let's talk about basal insulin and, and laying a foundation for MDI. Yeah, I think... Um you know, we're starting with type one. First of all, we, we've covered this topic in a couple other areas I want to make sure people know about. So our sixth episode of the podcast I just looked was called New Options for Basal and Bolus Insulin. So that's where we talk about specifically all these new therapies. And then we had a good friend, Earl Hirsch, actually do a video on our video vault about you know multiple daily injections. So the bottom line of all this is that if you have type one or type two, really, you should get on kind of quote unquote the best basal insulin. And the two that we really have people uh, try to get on is either Traceba or Tujeo. So I'll say those again, Traceba and Tujeo. Um, and notice I didn't say Lantus, which is you know still very, very commonly used. It's a great insulin. But with these newer ones, Traceba, Tujeo, they tend to be a little bit more consistent. They have less hypoglycemia. So are they grand slams in terms of taking care of all your issues? No, but they are better than, you know, Lantus. So if you're just listening to this and said, you know, what the heck are these new insulins? You know, ask your provider. Because I always say that the, the basal insulin is kind of the, the ground floor, as you were saying, of, of the house. And you can't build the next level until you kind of got that figured out. So once you get your basal locked in, you got to get that dose right. We talk a lot about how to do that in these other podcasts. But once you have that kind of figured out, you don't really have to change it too much. Once you got your basal locked in, you can kind of file that away. That's done with. Now I'm going to move on to mealtime and corrections, which is really where all kind of the, the issues come. And I think people kind of struggle with when it comes to diabetes in general. Any comments on that, Henry? Yeah, I think, you know, Jeremy, you touched on some really important points. One of the things, of course, is that Tujeo made by the same people who made Lantus. And so for them, it was an iteration and an important one, as you mentioned, because of its, its profile. Um, you know, one of the things that I've seen with my patients, especially those who've come from other physicians, is they're on really high basal rates. And I often wonder, you know, have they really worked out the basal rate situation with their healthcare provider or their team um, before we is before we get to that foundation? And sometimes it's because people aren't looking at the right at the right information. But you know, they're not looking at the blood sugars that may reflect their basal insulin. But you know, once you do have all of that squared away, as you were saying, Jeremy, yeah, the action is really what's happening after meals, what's happening during the day, before meals, when do you take insulin, when's the appropriate time, what you should expect, and how do you know whether or not what you're doing is right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, I should just say for, for the listeners out there, um, you know, there there's many of you who are probably on either Levomir uh, or Lantus, and if it's working for you, then more power to you. Um, Jeremy, what are some of the things we talk about in our patient programs, how to test 
if you're yeah, on the right basis. So a, a couple things. So for, especially for people with type 1 di- diabetes, first of all, when you look at the total amount of insulin that you have, you take in a day, you add up all the basal insulin and all your rapid-acting insulin, um, about half of your insulin should come from your basal and about half should come from your mealtime correction. And if that is way off in one way or the other, you know, you're 80% or the vast majority basal and not bolusing for meals at, at all or the other way around, that might be a sign that your basal is off. That's something kind of like crude and quick that everybody can do. Um, when you get a little bit more sophisticated, the best time to check if your basal insulin is right is really overnight. And very quickly, the way that you can do that is pick a night that you're going to bed, your blood sugar is relatively flat, has been for the last couple hours, ideally between 120 or 180 or so, and just see what happens overnight. And the job of a basal insulin is to keep your blood sugar flat. It's not to lower it. It's not to let it like rise. It's just to kind of keep it flat. So if you go to bed with a blood sugar of 180, and you wake up with a blood sugar of 180, well, you know what? That might be kind of a high blood sugar for you to, to wake up at. You might not be happy about that high blood sugar, but your basal is perfect. It's keeping you kind of squared away, flat all night, and then you need to kind of adjust maybe correcting your blood sugar before you go to bed so your, your, your basal can hold you. So long story short, you can just kind of do these overnight tests and see, gosh, every night I'm drifting up or I'm drifting down, and that might be a sign that your basal needs to be adjusted. But the thing I wanted to ask the group and kind of backing up a little bit is what are reasons somebody might actually actively choose MDI? Um, Because I think especially in the type 1 population, when I see patients, they almost feel like they have to defend the choice, you know, or there's kind of pump guilt, if that's a new phrase that I can, you know, coin where it's like, you know, pump list guilt. You know, I know I'm not on a system. I, I know I'm kind of a bad, you know, diabetic, but whatever, you know, People, you know, you, maybe they don't want to wear a device. Maybe they've had issues with pumps before, infusion site failures, etc. So again, this technology is fantastic, but there might be reasons that people actively choose it, and that is okay. I'll say that again. That's okay if you're using injections, and you shouldn't feel like you have to explain it away. Well, Henry works at Chippendale sometimes, so he could never wear a pump. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, Jeremy, I don't know what to say about Steve's comment, but um, one of the things that I think is is really important, and you know, it could be a whole separate topic, and that's the guilt that people feel because they may not be picking up the newest and the greatest, or their healthcare provider is pushing them in a one size fits all kind of way um, on the technology piece. But you know, um, and and certainly we all uh, come across this where people may have tried a pump, or they may be on a on a hybrid closed loop. Um, and they just can't feel that same kind of, um, of pattern or feeling of blood sugars rising or how to deal with alarms and so on. And they, they may go off. Uh, so it's, it's not only the people who sort of just maintain themselves on MDI. It's also those folks who've tried other technologies and decided to take either take a break, in which case they really need to know how to use MDI or they feel it's just not for them. Um, alarms and things like that, you lose that, that discretion. Um, but of course, as you were saying, you know, that it's, you know, everybody, uh, needs to choose a solution that works, that works best for them. And people who are taking care of themselves right on MDI do just as well. Yeah. Just yeah as I well. think, 
to add to that too is that people can switch back and forth. And I think people can kind of get in this mindset. I started a pump, now I'm a pumper. Or, you know, I'm on injections and I, and I can't do a pump. Um, Steve and I just learned that in two weeks we're both going to Hawaii and he's actually landing the day I take off. So we need to kind of sync our schedules a little bit more. But, you know, usually like when I will do something like that, go to place them in the water a lot, I'll actually switch to MDI, you know, so I'm not wearing a pump. And, you know, people can have those options. And that's actually a very... A useful learning tool for people to learn how to do that switch also. I think that gives people a lot of insight into what a, a basal does, whether it's an injection or through the pump. So anyways, people can have fluidity with their, their regimens. Wow. Fluidity. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's another um, good one. Memorialized is yours. Yeah, and there's a regimen that uh, I coined. One of the few things in my life that I coined that's in Wikipedia is the untethered regimen. Is it really in Wikipedia? Yeah. No way. Yeah. Can we fact check this, Eric? Yeah, yeah definitely fact <laughs> yeah. check it. Where's, where's that person that's yeah. in the back with the EMPs and, uh, going? No, 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 no. Yeah. We're not going to get into the details now, but you could. Uh, no, tell us. It's, it's, it's worth explaining. Yeah. Well, it's basically, uh, I got this idea from a patient of mine with, with diabetes who was on uh, an insulin pump and he liked scuba diving, but he couldn't wear his pump while he was scuba diving. And he would go under there for quite a while and spend most of the day in the water. So he would take 80% of his basal requirements as Lantus was way back when they didn't have the newer basils. And he would, it was perfect. Uh, 80% gave him a 20% reduction and he was exercising in the water, which could And then he would wear the pump also. No, he, he would take off the pump. Well, yeah, but in general, you know, he would have 80% as a basal while wearing the pump. You're right. Which would allow him to take off the pump, go scuba diving, but still have insulin on board and kind of connect it back up. And then connect it right back up and be able to use it uh, normally. But he would add an extra injection of basal insulin at You should night. read your Wikipedia page so you can get your Well, if you didn't interrupt me, I would have <laughs> explained it. Uh, but, Speaking but, of uh, interrupting, hey, what, what about the fact that, you know, when people go off pumps and they go on MDI or they're on MDI... It's not only about drawing the insulin up and sticking it into your body, right? There's got to be some guidance that's given about how actually to inject the insulin because an injection is not an injection and a needle is not a needle. So that's, you know, I think an important part if we're talking about things changing or, um, or having, uh, having MDI, um, how how you inject is really important injection technique and rotating your sites and making sure that you don't develop something called lipohypertrophy where that's where you feel like a bump under the skin which is a collection of some fat um so rotating the sites is as important people have got to talk to their healthcare providers and healthcare providers have got to mention to them how important injection technique is well i want to ask you more about that but first of all to confirm I can't believe this. Eric pulled this up. So the untethered regimen is on Wikipedia, and it literally says the term was coined by Dr. Steve Edelman. So congrats, I don't believe Steve. it. Did you I edit don't that? I want to fact check Eric. Well, yeah. Anyways, it's, it actually Gosh, says his name there. You gotta, you gotta, you have to fact check me. So, so, but um, Henry, that is important. And as much as we talk about the dose of insulin, we really don't talk about actually technique, you know, or, you know, needles, syringes, all of that. So, you know, with your background, you know, tell us why, why is, you know, the needle important, the syringe you use, uh, the pen needle, all of that. Um, that's something, like I said, we, we just don't even think about. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, I can't tell you how many people brag about how many times they use their needle. Mm-hmm. Every time they inject, they, 
they bleed out because <laughs> the needles, you know, you know what they look like under electron microscope. But I do think it's important. I think one of the biggest issues, Henry, is we have no places to dispose of them. You yeah. know, that's the issue. Well, yeah. tell us, tell us your thoughts, Henry. Yeah, no, Steve, that's a major issue. And, you know, they carry people living with diabetes, carry these, these kits and, you know, they're walking around with lancets, which is another question. You know, you'll ask somebody living with diabetes, how often do you change your lancets? And of course the traditional answer is you're supposed to change your lancets. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when I was a fellow, we all talked about giving intramuscular insulin as a way of dealing with people who are experiencing DKA to slow down insulin absorption, or it changed uh, the way that insulin gets absorbed. And that's a really important reason to consider, for example, how long needles are. So, you know, you've seen in your lifetime needles uh, changing and evolving, et cetera. But we know if a needle is too long, or if somebody really jams their needle down, as you know, you've seen some people do, they can end up injecting not in the space that insulin should really go where it's ideally absorbed, but rather into the muscle. And we want to avoid that. So injection force is really, really important, but also how the needle is made. What is about the needle that can get you not to inject into the muscle? Really important. So Number one, shorter needles. And I remember when I first saw this four millimeter needle, this tiny little needle, I said, there's no way somebody like me who's got some extra padding for the winter, I understand bears quite well, couldn't possibly <laughs> use the same size needle as somebody as svelte as my, as my hosts are. It just couldn't possibly be the case. And then I saw the literature and it said, no, it is the case that you know people's skin pretty much uniform, regardless of whether or not to have a lot of fat beneath it, but the skin itself is pretty uniform. And that this four millimeter needle would actually prevent the insulin from being injected into the muscle. And, you know, further that if you can put something at the base of the needle that prevents, even if you try to really push down, it spreads the pressure a little bit. So you don't get that same, you know, pushing down onto the skin where you could ultimately reach the muscle anyway. And as a clinician, I never really thought about it, to be honest, you know, a needle was a needle. Um, And then I started learning a little bit more about what the needles, uh, that needles do matter and the size matters and how you inject uh, matters. So we're still stuck with the problem of how to get rid of them and the importance of changing your needle with every injection. So how do we deal with, with having the extra stuff? That's an unresolved issue, I think, but really important to talk about the needles being switched with every injection and some of the characteristics we talked about. So why is that important? Changing every, every single injection. What happens if you don't? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about and our friend Earl, who recently um, we, you mentioned is that there are changes that happen under the skin. And when you inject uh, with a needle that's been reused, you know, aside from the fact that it causes pain and you do theoretically expose yourself to the risk of infection um, because this needle is no longer sterile once you open it and use it the first time, but also because of the trauma that it causes to the skin and underneath the skin, which may end up 
contributing to some fibrosis or some scarring of the tissue, which ultimately may may lead to a different absorption of insulin from under the skin. And that's how I like to think about it um, when we talk about uh, changing needles with each injection. Yeah, you know, you know, Henry, I, I'm sitting here thinking while you're speaking, um, you know, Jeremy and I, we see people with type 2. You probably don't see too many kids with type 2, but you probably see some these days. And uh, there's nothing better than to pull out a ultra-fine 4-millimeter, you know, uh, super skinny needle and show a type 2 how relatively painless. Most of the time, totally painless. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say all the time. And I, I do think that makes a big difference for people's comfort. Now, the other thing I was thinking is that... Well, I think when you're talking about, yeah, like, because there's so much needle phobia, you know, you're going to have to do injections and that's a big barrier to overcome. And I'll never forget, we actually did that video the other day and you had me close my eyes and you said, I'm going to stick this needle in your arm and you tell me when I've done it. And I couldn't. You jabbed me in the arm and then I, I said, right? And I said, I, I didn't know that you had done it. And I looked and there was a syringe hanging out of my arm. And so like, <laughs> it just goes to show you how p- relatively painless this, this is. And that's important because insulin is such an important kind of part of our armamentarium. That's another good word uh, for treating diabetes. And so we want to make sure that people don't have fear around um, the actual act of the injection. Yeah, I, I hear you. I use that technique all the time in clinic when a person with type 2 needs needs some insulin, whether mm-hmm. it's one shot a day, whether it's basal, whether it's a pre-meal insulin. You know, the other thing I was thinking of is that, you know, the the needle tips, those needles are so fine, and I've, I've heard that they are actually lubricated, and the bevel is, like, polished, so it just makes ease of insertion. insertion. But there are people around the world, and we have – over a hundred people from over a hundred countries listening to our podcast that may not have access to those. And they're still using the old vial and syringe, you know, it's just not everyone has access. Yeah. I was going to say, what do you tell patients when, you know, syringe versus pen, and we can even talk about in pen, kind of smart pens, like a little bit about kind of ways that they inject. Well, I'm, you know, (laughs) I mean, I think there's no, there's no uh, comparison between, using an insulin pen and a violent syringe. I always talk about the three things that denature insulin, light, heat, and agitation. So if someone's only yeah. on, you know, 40 <laughs> units a day, they're walking around with a vial, sloshing it around. It's exposed to light and heat. And that denaturation, it's not a, never 100%, but that partial denaturation of the insulin can mess up your control. But some patients are on quite large doses at one time and it makes sense just to pull out a one cc syringe and and drop what you need and that might be easier well, what do you what do you say to that well, i was going to ask henry if i can something that that made me think about yeah. is that i i love pens obviously i think they're better than syringes for a number of reasons but the one thing that always frustrates me is that you always have to prime it you know you always have to take a couple units and, and make sure that there you know is actually insulin coming out because so often it's air bubbles and if you're a type one, the difference between getting, you know, three units and four units can be a big deal. So I always tell people before every single injection, you dial up two units, you push the button down, make sure you get, you know, insulin coming out before you inject it. And Henry, does that have anything to do with the, the needle itself that over time, does it, is it affect kind of actually delivery of the, the insulin coming out? You know, Jeremy, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think that the point you made about dosing is really important that you may not get the full dose um, Mm -hmm. if you're on a very, very small dose to begin with. 
And Steve, yes, the the, the needles are lubricated uh, so that there is a, a smoother a smoother insertion. Lubrication does that really well for you. Um, and I, I think that um, the the question of why it is that you know priming is so important. I think really has to do with the fact that we want to assure that somebody gets the right dose. But you know, as as we're we're in time now where people are talking about um, cost of insulin and wastage of insulin, and of course, you know, now there's been so much movement around containing price. But you know, even then, a unit, two units, three units begin to add up, and you know, we we all have dealt with somebody running out of insulin, the payer won't approve of a, an additional vial or somebody drops a vial. So I think there are lots of considerations, but uh, the other one that, that came to mind, Jeremy, is can people actually see those two drops mm-hmm. you know, of insulin? They're so small. Um, is it possible that they can actually see it? Regardless, I think knowing reliably that you're actually getting the dose that you're calling for in a pen is really critical, especially mm-hmm. on low doses. You know what, Henry? People ask me all the time, do I really need to hold down my insulin pen uh, plunger five or 10 seconds? But this is what they ask me. No matter how long I hold it down, I pull it out of my body. And if I push on it, they see a couple little dribbles on the end of the needle and and. Are they supposed to get that or is that built into the, the system where you're supposed to see something come out no matter what? I'm not familiar um, with the pens enough to be able to comment on that, but it's a really good question. And so injection force is one that I think about when, when now you're talking about that particular piece, but I hear that from, from people living with diabetes the same way you do. I took an injection and there was a a little drop of liquid, for example, on the skin. And how do you, how do you deal with that? And it's, it's, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, but trial and error, observing, checking your blood sugar, wearing a CGM, all of those important tools. Yeah. I think to your point of seeing the the drops first for the priming. I always prime it kind of over my hand so I can actually feel it and then you can smell it too. But you're right, it can be hard to see those little drops. And yeah, the little dribble at the end, I don't know. I, I kind of don't worry about it. But what when we're talking, I'm kind of thinking about the evolution of somebody doing injections that when we first teach them, it's, you know, use an alcohol wipe, you know, do the injection, you know, hold it in, you know, in for 10 seconds, take off the needle, put it into your, you know, sharps disposal. And then eventually that turns into, okay, the, the alcohol wipe is probably the first to go. And then it turns into, you know, injecting through your shirt. And then maybe the, the disposal <laughs> yeah, yeah. container becomes a, a tied, you know, uh, detergent. And then it goes just, I'm just going to throw these away. And so things kind of deteriorate as people just are doing this over and over and over again. So, you know, Steve, what do you tell people? Do they need to do alcohol wipes? Like, what about injecting through shirts? You know, I'll put you on the spot. And I, both of us have done that. You know, it's just sometimes you got to, especially if you got your shirt tucked in, whatever. Um, yeah, well, I, I definitely do not tell them they need alcohol wipes unless their skin is dirty. If they're, let's say they're a mechanic or they do some, you know, physical labor involving dirt and grease. But most of the time I don't. But I do suggest using a new needle. Mm-hmm. these days just because um i i and to rotate 
and I went to a lecture in Berlin at that diabetes technology meeting that you were at, Henry, and a woman spoke about lipohypertrophy, and she accused most endocrinologists of never putting their hands on patients. <laughs> and I said, I said, you know what? She's right. I never say, uh, where do you typically inject? And if you're on multiple daily injections, you're giving yourself, if you're a type one, you're probably minimum four, maybe up to six, seven if you do correction doses. If you're a type two, you're going to be on at least, you know, minimum two and maybe more. So I do think rotation is important because once you get an area of lipohypertrophy, that area is really not the best area to use. And if you inject just every day at a creature of habit, like you're mentioning, you inject in the same spots. Mm -hmm. So I know I... And I think for people that inject through their clothes, they've actually studied this. It's perfectly safe. Yeah. If, and you may have little red blood stains mm -hmm. on all your clothes because every once in a while, a little bit of blood comes out. It's not the end of the world. But um, I do think using a new needle is is helpful, whether you're injecting through your Levi's, <laughs> double thick corduroy, or uh, straight up. So, Henry, let me ask you something. So we're talking about lipohypertrophy which is just fat accumulation in the area that you've been injecting. And that can cause issues with absorption. And also it's just, you know, people don't like fat accumulation. So there must be data on, is that more common in people on pumps, you know, where they're constantly fusing in the same area or in people using injections or, 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 or what? Yeah, you know, uh, more than 50% of people don't change needles or don't change sites. And you guys know, you'll hear, well, it doesn't hurt when I inject there, so I'm just going to keep injecting there or putting a site in or checking your blood sugar. So, um, you know, the, that issue of repeated injecting in the same spot, people are creatures of habit. Whether or not this happens in pumps is a really good question, especially as we think about um, extended wear infusion sets, for example, infusion sets that are lasting now longer uh, than traditionally three days and so on, and people looking to develop. It's not well studied, and I don't know if there's much data, and Jeremy, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it is an area of our interest, most certainly. Um, uh, for me, both uh, as a physician and professionally in my job at Imbecta to see actually what happens when you're wearing an uh, infusion uh, pump or an infusion set for four days at a time. Um, so different kind of way that insulin is being administered, right? Um, slowly and so on. Um, and whether or not that makes a difference, I think, is still an area of, of interest. I, I would say in my practice where many of my patients are on, on pumps, and maybe it's because I'm not looking really as much as I should be. Um, I don't really see that as, as much of a problem, but I think it definitely is something that as people think about lipohypertrophy, they'll be looking for uh, those kinds of signs. Yeah. Well, thank you, Henry. You know, to, to round out our program as we're getting to the end, you know, we talked about basal, uh, but just a quick word on mealtime insulin. So folks on MDI, they have to take an injection and we always talk about the timing. It's, you know, almost all the suggestions we, we talk about with pre-meal insulin pertain to people on a pump or not on a pump. You want to take your insulin 20, 30 minutes to early, 
you know, you got to calculate your dose. You know, some of us you, you do carb counting. Some of us just have a set dose and then increase it based on the blood sugar. No matter what your method is, I think, you know, it's just important to be able to know that you're on the right dose, you take it at the right time, and that you'll need adjustments over time because no one eats the same thing every day. And one thing I didn't say, uh, and you mentioned, um, you know, a little bit about lancets for people who prick their finger. I mean, for, for my patients that want to be on MDI, they do great. Most of them do, but they do great because they have a continuous glucose monitor. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's, that's the state of the art. I don't care if you have type two or, and especially type one, that's the wave of the future. And I think uh, getting access to one will make your MDI regimen super successful. Yeah. I think along those lines, if I see a patient, they say, you know, I don't, I don't want to be on a pump, you know, I'll, I'll push a little bit, especially now with the hybrid closed loops. Look, these are things that they can do. Um, but I kind of won't let up on the CGM issue, mm -hmm. meaning I just make that so important. I just don't know how to take care of people without CGM. I think it's such an important tool. I think everybody should absolutely be on a continuous glucose monitor. And from there, if you want to add the pump, great. Um, if you want to do, you know, multiple daily injections, we can kind of, you know, work within that. I do think it's also important just to, for people to know that there's kind of a, a movement, if you will, in, in all these companies coming out with like smart pens of ways of, of getting kind of mealtime dosing that you can track the dosing, um, you can download the information, you can put kind of carb ratios into the pens. The N pen, the IN pen is probably the one that we use most commonly. And you can get some actually nice downloads from that that show people's blood sugars when they're taking insulin. And again, it has some kind of pump-like features where people could say, oh, I'm eating 30 grams, it'll do the calculations for them. So there are ways of getting some of the benefits of pump while staying on um, multiple daily injections. That's a, such an important point, Jamery. Thanks for bringing that up because they really have all the benefits of the of the software of an insulin pump. And a lot of the insulin companies are coming out with their own smart pen, even as simple as uh, telling you how much you took at what time during the day, and then they build in extra features from there. And I think it's helpful. And, you know, I remember way back when the first kind of thing I heard of a smart pen was called this Timesalin, which was literally a cap that went on your uh -huh. insulin pen and it would just tell you like the time that had gone by yeah. since you'd last taken an injection. And the whole reason it was designed is because you would forget if you had done an injection or not. And I'm not talking about people with Alzheimer's or, you know, this is just everybody. You get doing it so often. I remember taking an injection of, you know, Humalog, Novolog, this would happen all the time, put my pen down and then be like, did I do that? You know, did I take that injection? And it was even worse if it was your basal insulin, because then you're like, well, do I take a double dose or emit the dose? So yeah. it kind of started in this very simple, did I take my insulin? And now has evolved to, you know, all these downloads and, you know, some of the pump features. So um, if you didn't know about that and you're on multiple daily injections, there's something else to yeah, kind of take think the about. wrong insulin too, because if you have yeah, basal I've done that also. Jeremy's yeah. done everything I've done it wrong all. Uh, once. <laughs> uh, this is something I didn't know about, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, I just want to I want to say one more thing about CGM. You know, what I tell some of my patients is that, you know, if you do finger sticks, it's like going into a movie and catching a one second frame, stepping out and then saying, so how was the movie? And people can't tell the story without having those continuous numbers. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's another analogy I like to use. I think people relate to. That's a good one, Henry. Well, Henry, anything else you'd like to say in closing? Uh, once again, this is such an important topic that affects most people taking insulin around the world. 
to be completely honest, what I would tell people is go on TCOYD website and take a look at some of those videos because I can tell you that I've learned so much uh, watching them. I've made fun to myself of a number of people, uh, some of whom are are on the podcast, uh, my host. And um, it's it's really been a place that I think everyone can get some great information, great knowledge, practical tips that make a lot of things clearer. Well, thanks for saying that, Henry. Really appreciate it. Yes. You know? So yes, please check out our website if you like to go the visual route. We got our podcast, obviously, which you're listening to now. So if you like it, like it, share it with other people. Um, this has actually been something we've been doing just over a year now, and we have no intention of going away. Steve and I have been you know, really enjoying it. Um, so thank you so much for being here with us, Henry. And I'm glad that this topic kind of went in this direction um, to some, some areas that we don't talk about a lot, but are just really critical. It's so true. So thanks again for joining us. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will uh, hear you, talk to you on, on the next one. Thanks, Henry. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.